Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. First up this week is an artist whose sculptures explore forms that seem rooted in the familiar, a cube, a sphere, an X, but that push beyond the familiar in ways that reveal the possibilities in familiar shapes and spaces. Liz Larner's work will be spending the summer on the outdoor terrace at the Art Institute of Chicago. The installation will feature two of Larner's recent works, the Stainless Steel X from 2013, a work first shown at that year's Nasher Exchange in Dallas, and the sculpture Six from 2010-2011. The works will be on view on a Larner-designed wooden platform that will serve as a base for both works. It will all be at the Art Institute through September 27th. The installation was organized by curator Leika Weitholer. Larner was the subject of a mid-career survey at the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, and her work has been featured in single artist shows or installations at the Kunsthal Basel, the Austrian Museum of Applied Arts, and the MCA Chicago. On the second segment, Pulitzer Arts Foundation curator Tamara Schenkenberg will tell us about the Fred Sandback piece she's installing for the reopening of the Pulitzer this weekend. The museum has been closed while it's expanded its Tato Ondo designed building. Sandback's 64 three-part pieces will be on view at the museum through September 12th. Sandback created the work, which has only been installed once in Munich in 1975, to have 64 different permutations. With Sandback's idea in mind, the Pulitzer will realize many of those permutations over the course of the exhibition. So if you see it on May 1st and again a week later, it will look different. The museum will also show the drawing Sandback made for the piece. But before we get to this week's conversations, one of our sort of regularly scheduled pleas to help spread the word about the Modern Art Notes podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about us. If you subscribe to The Man Podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher, please leave us a quick star rating, four or five stars or one star, um, on those sites. It won't take more than 10 seconds, and it will do a lot to help new listeners find the show. Thanks very much. Liz Larner, after the break. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. Fun news. The Modern Art Notes podcast is going back on the road. Please join Philida Barlow and me at the Nasher Sculpture Center on Saturday, May 30th at 2 p.m. Among other things, we'll be talking about a major new exhibition of her work curated by the Nasher's Jed Morse. It will include the first museum commissions Barlow has taken on since her Duveen commission at the Tate Britain last year. Barlow's exhibition at the Nasher opens on the day of our taping, May 30th, and will remain on view through August 30th. Phila Barlow is coming back to the Man Podcast at the Nasher. Hope to see you there. And we're back. Liz Larner, welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So one of the sculptures you're showing at the Art Institute is titled X. And you also showed two versions of, of X last year in Dallas as part of the first Nasher Exchange project. So when it comes to these pieces, is it the form that you as a sculptor can make with the X shape that interests you? Or are there associations that we as humans have with the letter X, whether that's chromosomal or marking the spot or whatever, that attracted you to that form? Well, I've been I've done a lot of X's. That, that was not the first one. I've 
I've worked with it. I think the first time the first time was in like the late 80s. But you know, the idea of X is it's such a simple graphic, two lines crossing form that really has this illimitable kind of range in terms of what it can mean. It's like, you know, in mathematics, it's like the stand-in for whatever you want it to be. It can hold that place. So it seems to be like the perfect form to try to complicate because of course, you know, the X is usually, it's a two-dimensional thing. And I'm interested in how the two-dimensional and three-dimensional can come together and influence each other and are different from each other. So it's sort of something that I can always come back to. It's sort of simple starting place that can become much more complex really quickly. Are there art historical X's, whether in painting or drawing or sculpture, that interest you? Or interested you when you started exploring the form? Yeah, I think my favorite is actually, you know, a piece that is in Lackness collection, John Mason's X. I don't know if you know that. It's a very, very large ceramic piece that he built a kiln on the site of Mocha to make. Oh, the red one, yeah. the big red one? Mm-hmm. It's just such an amazing work and just kind of, def- you know, on the edge of defying the material. I think it was also quite difficult to achieve, you know, it was kind of, it's just sort of an incredible object to me. You know, I've seen it from, I've seen it for, since I've been in Los Angeles. So it's always been something that I've thought about. It's a big kind of uh, five foot high stoneware piece with kind of a red glaze. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. It's been in Lackmas collection since 1973. The piece itself is from 1966. You know, that's it's it's interesting you point to that Mason because one of the things I wanted to ask you about the the X pieces. So for example, last year in Dallas one was in wood, one was in stainless. And I wanted to talk to you about or ask you about surface. Was there a reason that have making that piece in different surfaces was particularly interesting? That X, you know, it's it's basically the same form in the maple as it is in the stainless, but I wasn't sure, you know, stainless is just such a commitment as a material. And the form is so on the edge of kind of being able to support itself. I just, you mean in wood? In, uh, I didn't know, you know, I, I wasn't, it wasn't something that, you know, it's so complicated to have it engineered, I thought would take away from what it might be that the origins of, that form is that it's actually done in the computer and laid over a mystery object that was also computer generated that I don't say what that is. And, you know, I made a graphic X to, and then wrapped it around that three-dimensional 3D object in the computer. And so that's kind of where it came from and decided, you know, the thickness. And I tried to make it as thin as I thought I could make it for it to actually be able to stand up and exist outside of the computer. So I wanted to, I basically wanted to make it in the wood first to just make it in a cheaper material that, you know, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be turned into a giant boondoggle if it didn't work. And so that was why it was kind of a, a, a full scale model idea to make it in the wood first and you know we, we were talking about tony smith tony smith often would you know realize his ideas in plywood first before committing to steel or 
So once you had them in wood and stainless and it was physically or engineeringly, you know, successful, you know, it didn't snap and break. Did you find differences or I guess differences in the surfaces that you thought were interesting or useful? Yes, I mean they're, they're, they have complete, a complete. You know, it's the same. I, thought, I always find this interesting that you know material is so strong and speaks so strongly that they're they have completely different feelings, even though they're almost exactly the same form. Completely different feelings. They even feel like a different size when you're standing in front of yeah, them. Yeah, and and you know, I just think that's that's a part of my practice is the material aspect, and so you know, in having both of those things like that and separated as it was in at ATEC, you have to kind of walk between them. You're like, really, was that as big? And then you check the, the card and, but, you know, that uh, just highlighting how, how important material is, you know, and how it really affects like everything. So, I mean, I think they're both are you asking me if I think one is more successful than the other? I no, no, no. I just, you know, if, if, if you, once you had them, I didn't mean to phrase it that way. I just meant that if once you, once they were made and in front of you, did you find the surfaces and the difference in the surfaces of the two to be interesting, useful, motivating? Yes. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, I just, like I said, I think it really brings out the importance of material and the, the wooden one is just so much cozier that the stainless steel is is pretty it's a pretty it's incredible because it takes everything on to itself so it has this sort of chameleon feeling to it but then it also quickly reverts to kind of you know the steel aspect the, the toughness of that material reasserts itself so it's constantly sort of materializing and dematerializing in front of your face where where the wooden one doesn't do that as much it it ha, you know the the maple itself is so warm and and so beautiful and golden that it kind of overwhelms form more interestingly to me that the the, the mirror polished stainless actually changes more than the than the wood does Another reason it's interesting to me that you mentioned Red X, which has a very particular and distinct surface, is you were working, I think, on on the X pieces at about the same time you were working on your last solo show at Regan Projects in LA. And that was a show that was full of, you know, that had kind of two kinds of pieces that had incredibly different surfaces. Was the surface of Red X informing the ceramic sculptures with epoxy and pigment that, that you showed? I think that I have been very influenced by that generation of California ceramicists. The first class I ever took in ceramics was from Ken Price, and I took two classes with him. I, had, I wasn't in school. I, I went and was able to take classes at USC in the late 90s. I, I didn't take ceramics when I went to art school. But I, I always, I've always admired that generation of ceramicists and and artists using ceramics i know there's still that i don't have a problem with going in between those terms in fact i would love it if somebody would call me a ceramicist but no one will (laughs) (laughs) that's okay i don't really deserve it i don't think so i knew that work and so i think 
can prices work, you know, for many different reasons is polychromatic surfaces. And the polychromatic surfaces that, you know, have been part of the history of ceramics have really informed, you know, my sculpture. And I think it's interesting that there's so much more of that in ceramics than there has been in, in sculpture. That's, a, that's, that's an interesting idea. I mean, in fact, in my notes, I had just in, in, in my notes when I saw that show, I guess last year, 2014, I noted that the surfaces of those ceramic pieces reminded me of, of the work of a painter, of Anne Appleby. So my point of reference for them was a painter who sands down surfaces 30 times to get a certain depth of color rather than a sculptor. Yeah, well, you know, I think that something's happened where I have really started to merge a lot of different forms together. And uh, I, you know, I can't say that that was my, I don't think that was like a conceptual intent of the work, more of some, a, an, an aesthetic drive to see, to see certain things together. Well, another piece that was in that show, kind of the big floor piece in the middle of that show, is called V Planchette. It's from 2013, and it is certainly a sculpture, but it also, I don't know, it's covered by, I don't know, maybe I should let you describe what it's covered by. It's covered in mulberry paper. It's a, a, an aluminum armature covered in mulberry paper and then painted with egg tempera. And it's kind of a, it's not black, it's, and it's not quite navy blue either. It's kind of a... It's, it's, a, it's a pigment. I mean, I'm, I made the paint, so, you know, I, I used the pigment and mixed it with the egg on the days that we painted it. And it's uh, basically a pigment called Indanthrone, which is a really great blue that has a lot of undertones and overtones in it, especially when you mix it yourself. It's not a... It's, makes it very inconsistent and the thicker or thinner it is, it really changes. It has a, a, a red overtone. So, which was part of, you know, what I, what I wanted it to do. And I've done a number of the, the planchettes. It's, it's five. That's uh, Roman numeral five. Oh, right. I, yeah. I was expressing the Roman numeral. I'm sorry. When I called it V, but that's what I was. Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> it's also interesting, but I like, I liked that that one was V, you know, it's, that's the, the stand. We call I call it the standing planchette because I did it. I did four other ones that, or five other ones, I guess, because I the first one didn't have a number, and they are all called planchette. But they were on the wall, and so five planchette was the only standing one, and you can really move around it, and the color changes much more because of that as you move. Yeah, that's why I was trying not to describe it as blue. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's red it's black it's got some green there, there's definitely underpainting I'll, I'll admit there's some underpainting that went on but I, i'm a li slightly secretive about my processes one of the things that that sculpture has that you've done quite a bit of over the last 10 or 15 or 15 really years is there's an armature over which there is paper how did that develop as something that you didn't just go to once, but that you kept going back to. You know, it was it's it had there's a practical aspect to it, but it's it's for an end. You know, it's like I think the first works that I I did that were was a work called Two is Three and Some Two, and then short and then right after that a work called Two or Three or something. And those are the pieces that are kind of 
not quite cubes, but are kind of a mixture of a cube and a drawing and sculptural form. Yeah, I mean, they would be cubes if the lines were straight. And one of them has two intersecting warping cubes and the other and that one. And that one is kind of a pale yellow and blue. It's pale yellow, blue, and kind of a brown. Yeah, like a pinkish brown, yeah. And so, you know, to get that form to stand up, I actually... I, I had made it once before. It wasn't as successful. It was like too, they were sagging too much with more paper but, uh, and smaller too. But I, I used uh, steel that I could bend, heat and bend. And I wanted a soft surface. I wanted to deny the material that was, you know, creating the form. And so the idea was to cover it in paper and paint it with a water, a watercolor that you know gave it this completely other feeling so that's that's where that came from i think it you know it's it's you don't see things that look like that because the material can't really do that by itself so it's a way of changing the material while still using the material yeah well you you mentioned two is three and some two which was a piece i was looking forward to asking you about it's one of my my favorite pieces of yours and and as i said before it's the it's the piece that has two not quite cubes not quite on top of each other we'll have images of it on manpodcast.com you told Colette Chattopadhyay that you wanted to reveal the instability of the cube with a piece you made in 2001 out of fiberglass and in reading that it kind of sounds like what you did with two as three and some two, two as well so this is a long way of, of, of saying that when I think of a big Tony Smith cube, I think of stability, not instability. So how did you find instability in, in, in the Tony Smith form? Well, I mean, the cube is not the most stable form. You know, it's, it, it is a very stable form, but I mean, you know, triangles and cones are more stable. It's, I guess I don't know if that came how that came off. I guess maybe I was trying to make that form in unstable. The form that you know, it's kind of like the X. It's kind of like we come to accept it as a certain thing. And how do as an artist, you know, that so it was it's kind of, you know, that was a place I could go because it was the not the generation before me, but you know, a recent precedent in sculpture and this kind of sense of knowing that was like accepted. So how do you go back and like destabilize that? I think is part of what it was about or reopen the question that has been so closed down by something that's been so accepted. So, you know, sort of questioning, thinking about these kind of basic sculptural three-dimensional tenets of volume and mass and weight and density you know someone else of course that always deals with that would be Richard Serra but you know Tony Smith that was a big part I think of what he did what's hollow what's not hollow what's plate what's not plate and all these you know the different ways of making things you know it's a big part to me of of becoming a sculptor and how do you want to make something and do you always want to make something the same way or what is it about and and so you know, so taking that kind of given, what it's maybe become almost a given, and sort of opening it back up, like, I guess literally and figuratively, although I don't really want to put it that way, but, you know, opening it up, keeping the volume there with getting rid of the mass, changing the form, having it almost becoming unrecognizable, but still 
being able to refer to a cube. I think that's more what I meant. I don't know if I meant that it, that cubes are destable, but maybe they can be. Maybe those cubes certainly are. You know what I mean? The, the, and two or three or some too, those cubes are. You know, hearing that answer, the artist who who came to mind as you were talking is Jackie Windsor. I, I listened to, I didn't get to listen to her whole podcast, but I, I was listening to that podcast. Yeah. Yeah, she's a, she's a past guest on, on, on our show. Was, is her work and specifically her cubes important to you or a reference point? Yes. And I saw one of her cubes pretty early on. She had a show at 11 early on for me, you know, I, so I got to see uh, some of her work. The thing that, that I guess I wanted to do that I didn't feel that, you know, she really kept that cube, <laughs> you know, she really kept it going. It didn't change the shape. It's like how it happened what happened to it afterwards, you know, dragging it behind the car, opening up towards the inside, all those kinds of things. There was a lot of experimenting with that form. I kind of wanted to mess up the form, change it, turn it into something else whilst it's still, you know, registered as that. Like how far can I take it away and still have it and still bring that, all that with me. But uh, she's a wonderful artist and I, I have definitely looked at her work. So speaking of the 2001 untitled piece out of fiberglass, which we'll have an image of on manpodcast.com, there's certainly cube there and we're talking about it now in the context of the cube. But in the past, you have noted to interviewers quite clearly that you prefer to describe that piece as spherical. And I wonder why. Um, well, it was, you know, that form was generated by an animation I made an animation of a sphere turning into a cube. And so can I interrupt really quickly? Was it re referencing animation or did you actually use animation in the process of making the piece? I made a three dimensional animation in a program called Maya of a sphere turning into a cube, turning back a really simple animation of a sphere becoming a cube, becoming a sphere again. So, which is a line because it's an animation, but it's also a loop in terms of, what happens to the, the, what happens in the animation, this thing becoming one thing and then becoming something else and then, then becoming the thing it started with again. So that's round, right? <laughs> so, so that's like a circular motion. And then I, I, I picked out a sh two shapes in between the sphere and the cube and two other shapes between the cube and the sphere that were different. And so then I had this kind of line, because it was an animation, one thing happens after the next, of these things. And then in the computer, I pushed them all into one space, and then I pushed all these forms out to the surface. And I did this a whole bunch of different times to get it. It wasn't just like one act. I did it a bunch of different times, made a lot of different models from that, and then realized that I wanted to leave the sphere kind of inside. Well, it's sort of inside, but it doesn't exist. It's inside the concept of the thing. This is probably getting really abstract. Well, it survives as attention in the piece, though. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, it survives as attention in the piece. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think it does. I think it's very... Uh, well, and then the other thing that I did to 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 this animation was um, after I had kind of condensed it into one place, rather than being a line, it became a thing, an object. I 
press them all out to the surface, and then I rotated them in first on three axes, and that just was too much. That like overloaded everything, and you couldn't. It got very non. There wasn't much movement, and then I just rotated in two axes. And I think that rotation also is so spherical in the piece. There's this kind of spinning that is very spherical that's happening in that sculpture that really makes it seem round. So I think that in a way there's more roundness than there is cubeness in that. So that's why I had to kind of pull back from having the sphere be on the surface. So you used animation as a drawing, and his, which is interesting because historically animation has been the product of drawing. Well, and it was 3D animation, so like, is it a drawing? I don't even know. You know, I think that's a, I, I'm not sure. I don't really, it, it's kind of, I use it as a process. I use it as a way to get there. And, you know, it was also kind of, it was in 2001. Now lots of things are made you know, in 3D, but in sculpture, there wasn't that much stuff that, you know, wasn't using, you know, you make your, it's called your model, and then you take a, uh, uh, make a negative of that, and then you cast into that. So this, this way, I didn't, I never had a real model. The model was in the computer, and we just sent that information to have the molds cut so there so there was never one actual real object that the final thing was made from it was so it was all kind of you know i think like if you were to ask me about the surface of the x and and the the one in stainless you know it's kind of this like it's here and it's not here another place of of kind of playing around with that my guest is liz larner we'll be right back after a break Having completed a major renovation of its Tato Ondo-designed building, Pulitzer Arts Foundation reopens May 1st with three solo exhibitions of Alexander Calder, Richard Tuttle, and Fred Sandback. Gazing upward to Calder's hanging mobiles, downward to Sandback's yarn sculptures stretching through the galleries, and across to Tuttle's wire pieces extending from the wall at eye level, visitors will experience the expanse of the Pulitzer's building. The opening reception on May 1st features a commissioned performance by award-winning composer David Lang. For more details on the opening weekend and upcoming programs, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. And now back to my conversation with Liz Lerner. Switching gears a little bit, there have been a number of times in your career when it seems like you've been interested in the tension between perspective and flatness. There's a piece from 2001 called Untitled 
wall with, with the word wall in brackets. Later, there's a piece called Re Reverse Perspective. And kind of even in the two, three pieces of the drawn cubes sculptures that we talked about earlier, there's a little bit of that. Is there a tension between perspective and flatness that, that you find interesting? And if so, why? Yes, I, I mean, for sure. And, you know, um, the first time I showed that piece, a reverse perspective, extended, reflected, extended, reverse perspective, reflected, extended, was in Helter Skelter. Well, no, I did try to, I did a kind of a version of it at a gallery in New York, but then I did it for Helter Skelter and it was, it took up a lot of room and, and basically what it is, is it's, it's a, a one point perspective that's had the, you know, there's two rules in perspective. There's one's the vanishing point and the other is that the grid gets closer together at the far point of, at the at the vanishing point and this is for drawing if you're trying to render something three-dimensional and drawing and you want to have perspective that's that's those are the two rules that you that people use to to get that illusion of depth in drawing and painting and drawing so I just flipped the rule and kept the vanishing point but made the grid closer together at the opening of the, the picture plane of the vanishing point that makes sense and then that created this crazy optical illusion of not being able to tell even though it was real space and it had real depth it it kind of canceled that that closer grid canceled canceled out your ability to really judge that depth you know this is a whole area that's you know at the core of the last six or seven hundred years of painting what about it attracted you from the perspective of, 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 of a sculptor well, because I, I guess, you know, I, I call myself a sculptor. I, I think I'm an artist, and I think I early on I started thinking about the difference between two and three dimensions. And, you know, I, I also kind of feel that, you know, in contemporary life, we're constantly confronted with two-dimensional spaces all around us, representations of that you know, screens, posters, billboards, all that stuff is like part of our three-dimensional life moving through the, through the world. So it just seems like a really something really important to deal with as a contemporary artist. It seems to be, you know, what what we deal with all the time in, in the world. So, so thinking about two dimensions and three dimensions and how they're separated or not separated seem to be a place that there's, you know, a lot of work could be done. A lot of, a lot of sculptures or paintings or, or things that maybe have some of both going on or being made. I, I don't like to be that person who reduces an artwork to a response to one artist, to a single other artist, but hopefully we've, talked long enough now that listeners won't think I'm overdoing that. <laughs> but there are a couple pieces of yours I'd like to ask about and to ask you about how much they were addresses of, of another artist's work. And Untitled Wall is one of them. When I look at that piece, I think of a lot of things, but one of the things I think about is Harry Bertoia and kind of the wall-sized pieces he made. Was he of interest? You know, I, I don't think that I was as aware of his work 
before I made that as I became after I made it. So I don't, it wasn't, you know, whereas there's other works of mine, like Bird in Space, <laughs> that is definitely directly related to Brancusi's Bird in Space. You know, there's other works that, you know, I'm not saying that I haven't done that, but I wouldn't say that that, that was the case with um, Untitled Wall. When I look at Corridor Orange Blue, I see a remarkably clever and almost kind of laugh-out-loud funny rejoinder to not just Alexander Calder, but to the way Calders are used and cited and plopped in, pay, in place in front of you know corporate headquarters and other places that suggest power. Is that a piece that, for you, when you made it in 1991, had a lot of Calder in it? I think that it did. I mean, I... I've always responded to Calder. There's something about the way that Calder uses color, you know, to just reinforce a form that I, I've always kind of been intrigued by. And so it was, I don't know if I'm like, if it would be, if I could say that it was, you know, exactly only about Calder. I mean, it was also about color itself in sculpture and how it's used and, you know, trying to create a space where, you know, two opposite colors are next to each other and how that works in painting and and drawing compared to how that works in 3D space. I think that was the other part of that. But I think that the way that those pieces are hung, especially the metal, the parts that are made of metal, you know, was obviously, you know, you I would I would have to say that I got quite a bit from Calder on this. All the oranges, too, all the different oranges, and then the way you used kind of fabric, knitted fabric, in a way that subverts steel. I don't know, it just every time I look at it, it kind of cracks me up. <laughs> the last piece I'd like to ask about in the context of another artist is Corner Basher, a piece from the late 80s that is a machine in a corner uh, that kind of literally flails away at a wall. And it's maybe the only hint in your oeuvre that I see, and of course there may be things I'm, I'm missing, that suggests a direct engagement with the work of Chris Burden. This is a piece you made in the late 80s about when Burden was exposing MOCA's foundations. <laughs> was that piece as much about him as I think it might be? Well, I have to correct you a little bit because one, and, and you make the same mistake that everybody always does, that, that the piece is just in the corner flailing away and I have to let everybody know that, you know, there's a speed control in an on-off box about 20 feet away. So it's really a lot about, you know, controlling a machine and people do with that control. So it's not just, I think it's, it would be a very different piece if it was just a machine that was doing that. It's, it's audience controlled. So I just have to make that clear because a lot of times, you know, it's just the picture of the machine like hitting the wall. And it really has, there's a lot more going on, I think, in terms of like who's doing what and how that's happening. And, you know, it can also be turned off. It can be slowed down so that it doesn't actually hit the wall. There's a, there's a lot more variation that's possible than just this thing like hitting the wall. And like, I, you know, Chris Burden being educated in LA. I remember sitting in a lecture, I think that Judd Fine was giving, showing Chris Burden works. And I think a lecture, Chris Burden came and spoke um, when I was, I wasn't even an art student. I was just taking electives to USC and Chris Burden came and spoke in class. And I got to see a lot of his work and 
one of my favorite works of his is Column Drop. I think that's an incredible work. So yeah, I, I think that he is definitely one of the artists in Los Angeles that I, I was influenced by kind of early on. And I did even do a piece that, that was taken. A, I found a bottle in um, exposing the foundations of the museum in the third pit. And I took it out of the museum. And I made a piece of it called something I got out of, out of the museum here in Los Angeles. That, that's right. And then I think it was in your show at MoCA. Yes. A few years later. Yes, it was. So yeah, you're you're right. Chris Burden is he he was a he was somebody whose work I was interested in, and you know, with a lot of the a lot of the people we've talked about, except for Jackie Windsor today, have been men. And I, you know, it's like, there's sort of like this attraction to what people have done, like Chris Burden's work. And then there's a kind of, a, a kind of being able to make something that acknowledges that work and at the same time kind of changes it. I think that's a big part of it for me. When I think of those ceramic pieces you showed last year, the two artists I thought of first, I think I mentioned Dan Appleby already earlier, but the other one's Linda Benglist. Like, what's the Bankless works? Kind of the, you know, extended oval pieces from the 60s, you know, with the with the paint and wax. Uh, the word for that is escaping me at the moment. Oh, yeah. Encaustic. Yeah, the encaustic. vertical, though. But, yeah, but the surfaces kind of have the same... I think Linda Bankless is great. I, I mean, you know, so many of her works are so... They're so influential, I think, on any sculptor really and you know the way that she dealt with gravity something that I feel indebted to or deals with gravity is something I feel indebted to I don't think that you know I don't I don't see the similarity I, I hadn't thought of that yeah so when I look at those Linda Benglis pieces I don't see a single color I see lots of single colors exist together in a wonderfully harmonious way so that you can't kind of point at individual colors, but you know there are a lot of different colors in front of you and you know what many of them are. And I think that the ceramic pieces of yours from that show have some of that, that, that kind of multiplicity of, of caloric effect, if you will. It's a terrible phrase. I'll never use it again. <laughs> that sounds really fattening. No, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, it sounded... <laughs> Came way too close to colonic too. So. <laughs> All right, I see why you say that. I think that you know we could talk about Pierre Bernard and say that the same thing is happening there. And so, is Linda Benglis indebted to Pierre Bernard? Maybe. I mean, you know, it's like I think that it's true. I find that encaustic surface so different to me than than the surfaces that I have on those. It's just so muted and so milky compared to, you know, the color that I use that I, I, I hadn't thought of it. But in terms of this, you know, many colors being both merged and individuated, I think so. But I, I don't, I have to say that, you know, I can see why you're making the comparison, but I hadn't really 
thought of it myself at the time. I think there were, there are other, and I think more, I think I would have to say, you know, I'm not, I guess it's, it's hard for, it's funny <laughs> to me, but it's hard for people to understand this, but, you know, my references don't just come from sculptors. I, 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 I really do think a lot about painting and I really do think that the separation between, between the two into, you know, that, you know, form is one thing and color is another thing is, is something that I want to question. And so, so that's what's going on to me more in the work, but I, I'm not saying that I'm the first to have ever thought these things, but I guess I think about them in a particular way, but, but I can see that coming from, from Linda Bangless. And I do think she's a wonderful artist. So in closing, I want to ask about an influence you've talked about in the past, who is not a painter or a sculptor. And it comes from uh, an interview you did with Jane Dixon in Bomb Magazine. And you talked with her about your love of Joan Didion and how Didion's work has informed your work. And I don't want to talk too much about me here, but, you know, kind of Didion is everything for me as a prose stylist. And when I'm working on um, a project I'm working on now about California's most important artist, Didion seems even more important to me. So I think it's easy to understand how Didion could be important to a writer. How How is Didion important to you as someone who is mostly not a writer? Well, I mean, I, I guess for me, you know, she's important to me as a person because where she is from is also where I am from. I was born in Sacramento, California. Uh, yeah. And uh, kind of early on was given River Run and uh, Run River. Now I'm forgetting the title. Her first novel, Run River. Yeah, Run River. And, and it had a big impact on me just kind of almost, you know, because I wasn't exactly that person, but I knew who that person was. And so understanding myself and my place in California and where I grew up in relation to that writing was kind of big. And then, you know, just fall. And then, you know, she she preceded me to move to Los Angeles. And, um, I, you know, I read I read her Los Angeles books and I just have always read her writing. And I don't I don't know if it's like a formal interest as much as it is just I I use something of hers when I talk about RWBs as well. But I know exactly what you mean, you know, like in political fictions where she's laying out in many different cases how political fictions get made and then that piece, which is so much about political fictions. I use this. It's at the very end of A Book of Common Prayer by Joan Didion. And I, I like to read it. If, I think I read it as the voiceover that when you went through the Whitney Biennial, which that piece was part of, you would hear that when you were looking at the work, RWB. All I can tell you directly about Charlotte Douglas's death is that I sent her body to San Francisco. I had the body put in a coffin and I went to the airport with the coffin and I waited there until I could see for myself the coffin loaded into the hold of the first Pan American flight to leave Boca Grande after the October violence. 
I wanted to lay a flag on the coffin, but there were no American flags in Boca Grande that week. And in the end, I bought a child's t-shirt in the gift shop at the airport. This t-shirt was painted like an American flag. I dropped this t-shirt on the coffin as it was loaded into the hold of the Boeing. I think this t-shirt did not have the correct number of stars or stripes, but it did have the appearance of stars and stripes, and it was red, and it was white, and it was blue. There was no real point in that either. You know, so the idea, in terms of John Didion, you know, it's like that, it's a kind, I want to bring that poesis that I find in her writing. You know, if you can look at that work and think about what I just read, that is like, you know, that would, that's my great, that's the greatest situation for me, if that makes sense to you. Liz Larner, thanks so much for talking Thank to me. Thank you. Welcome back. My next guest is Pulitzer Arts Foundation curator Tamara Schenkenberg. The Pulitzer is reopening this weekend after being closed for an expansion, and one of the three installations with which it will reopen is the first American presentation of Fred Sandback's 64 three-part pieces. The work, which dates to 1975, has never been installed in the United States. Tamara Schenkenberg, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's start with Fred Sandback's title, 64 Three-Part Pieces. Maybe the best way to begin to talk about the piece is by explaining the title. Right. And the work is technically untitled, 64 Three-Part Pieces, but the 63 Four-Part Pieces really helps us to imagine and describe the work, which is sort of, it's going to sound more complex than the pieces itself, but let me attempt that. So when you walk into a gallery to see this work, you will observe three separate spaces that you can traverse. So the three part in the title refers to that. And then each gallery features a single length of brown yarn that has been stretched across a space. And those three lengths of yarn stretched individually across three adjacent spaces makes up a single sculpture. So that demystifies the three part in the title. The 64 uh, part means that the work itself is comprised of 64 individual sculptures. So this work, 64 three-part pieces, is what Sandbeck himself called the sculpture series. And it was very important to him that viewers understand that this is not a single sculpture in 64 parts, but it is a sculpture series that consists of 64 individual sculptures. Yeah, that is a very cool idea. So what do we know about how Sandbeck came up with this idea of a sculpture series, why he kind of coined that? phrase? Well, I think it has to go back to the serial approach that he was exploring at this time. It's not something that is common to his entire body of work, but in this period in the mid-70s, he's working serially. And of course, those serial inclinations have a long history in the arts. There's Maybridge and Monet in the 20th century, there's Albers with his square paintings. But I think seminal to Sandbag here was perhaps Mel Bachner's essay, The Serial Attitude, that he publishes in the mid uh, to late 60s, I believe. And I think, you know, for Bachner, he differentiates between a serial method versus working in a series. And working in a series means to offer variations on a theme, like Monet's Haystacks, for example. But a serial method meant that you have a permutational system. 
where you are determining the logic of a system in advance. So I think that's what accounts for Sandbach's attraction to this. The fact that you have a method or a mode of working that defines a closed system that has a, an internal logic which displaces the work into parts that you can experience over and over again. So it's, I think it goes back to the experience of the work and how that experience can be activated and energized over time. So how does Sandback get, get from Bachner's essay or from what he knows, say, for example, Saul Lewitt is doing, to making a work where the permutations of the work happen absent his presence, where, where the work can be or should be changed even when he's not physically involved with that? Well, you know, space is a really important, obviously, aspect to um, Sandbeck's practice. And he created always site-specific pieces in specific settings. But he never believed that a piece could only be realized in any given place. And although he was inspired by the place, he always maintained that a work of art can change. It can change permutationally or it could change geographically by being installed in one gallery in one city and then, you know, represented someplace else. I think the, the common denominator was that the work was always meant to respond to the space in which it was presented. So the first time Sandbeck shows this piece is in Munich. There are 64 possible permutations of the piece. How did the installation work in Munich? So it opened uh, at the Kunstraum, and it ran from April 15th through the 31st of 75, so exactly 40 years ago. And he had three rooms to work with. So in response, he stretched a piece of yarn in each room to create a single sculpture, which would then change over time. And he realized at that time six permutations, um, which he changed about once per week. And, you know, out of the 64 possible sculptures, he installed six, which is a a limited number. But I, I don't think that was as important to him. He always knew that the sculpture itself had a closed system, but he didn't put any demands on the system. So there was still a looseness and open-endedness within the way in which he worked. And one thing to note here, too, is that when he re- when he defined the work, it was very important to him that the yarn be installed running horizontally at two heights. So it was either running directly on the floor or 150 centimeters up the floor, so almost five feet tall. And I think it's sort of like an interesting idea, the fact that he is finding a new space for sculpture that exists below eye level. And since since the Kunstraum presentation, this work hasn't been installed. So, in fact, we're, we're doing it for the first time at the Pulitzer and are excited to run the experiment and see how the work lives and breathes in our space. So the the piece is installed in three rooms. Will people be able to walk through all three? Is that what he intended? So they're not going to be able to walk through each of the rooms, but they're going to be able to walk into the three of the rooms. So you can see them, they're sort of side by side, and you're walking their length, which also brings up the element of time because the, the, the sculpture itself is not static but unfolds through the visitor's traversal of those galleries. 
the, the catalog for for the, your show includes several of the installation shots from from Munich, which are kind of fascinating and fun at the same time. I mean, Sandbeck has obviously removed the doors, but the museum did not remove the hinges. <laughs> So there are these kind of ghost-like presences uh, that, that, that refer to, I guess, what what had been there. At least they look like hinges to me. Do we know how people traversed the space in Munich? And is, is, is that about what you're recreating? It's not exactly what we're recreating. We're sort of conceiving them more as dolls, which is true to his drawings of the piece. I was going to ask that next, yeah. Mm-hmm. But... You know, Sandbeck himself, you know, he belonged to the generation of artists who really started to raise questions about how we relate uh, ourselves, our bodies, to the physical space in which the artwork resides. And he saw his work as complicating or articulating any given spatial situation. And for him, it was important to respond to the actual architecture of the building. So, you know, I'm sure he considered the architecture of the space at the Kunstraum and created it for that specific setting. And the doors had to come off, but the fact that the hinges are still there, I think, still sort of nods to the, you know, the setting itself that he worked with to install the space, to install the sculpture. So what do the drawings suggest? There's, there's a couple of them reproduced in the catalog. What do they suggest to us about how we kind of thought through the idea of, I guess, both the installation of the piece and his interest in in seriality and kind of permutations of serial forms. So Sandbach, I didn't know this before I really started to research his work, but he was really a prolific draftsman. And, you know, evidence of that is the fact that there was a retrospective of his drawings just last year in Switzerland and in Germany, and he created a number of drawings for 64 three-part pieces. And I think of them as you know, sitting in these two groups. One group I would call preparatory drawings, where you really see him thinking through the space and imagining the way in which yarn could be presented. And then there's this other type of work, which is really a group of 64 drawings that omit the architectural framework completely and the setting of the gallery and only feature three lines in space in a very abstract fashion. And we're really lucky because those 64 drawings have just surfaced after 40 years, and we're going to be presenting them as a part of the show. And there you really get a sense of movement, and movement becoming uh, an important constituent part of this installation. And I think the movement you see in these drawings is as you observe these lines floating and changing direction on this blank space really calls to mind, I think, metaphorically, the movement of the viewer as he traverses the gallery, but also the the kinetic motion of the yarn as it's installed and deinstalled over the course of the exhibition. So I think it sort of signals change over time and nods to those unfolding permutations in a series. Any idea why the work has never been shown in the U.S.? You know, I... I don't have an answer today, but I'd love to know. I'm also curious as to why Sandbach himself didn't pursue seriality as a part of his practice. You know, in in mid-1970s, he certainly, in addition to this work, has another installation at the John Weber Gallery called 16 Two-Part Pieces, 
but you know it 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 doesn't he doesn't pursue it as a long-term strategy it, it doesn't sustain his long-term interests and I, this is speculative but i wondered if the system entered too much into the foreground and you know as a result the work somehow being lost in the process or perhaps it was too restrictive it's still sort of open to interpretation, but I, I don't know why it hasn't been shown. I don't know if it has to do with the degree of difficulty of having to tend to a work like this. Well, I was going to ask about that. So how many different permutations will the Pulitzer be installing? So we will be installing one one per week during the run of the exhibition, which is 20 weeks. So we will install most in the series, but we will still not realize all of them. So what does changing the the installation involved and and because I was wondering if the you know mutability of it leads to kind of functional difficulties like holes in drywall that maybe potential installers would have considered a barrier to entry if you will yeah in talking to my chief of installation and uh, the people at the Sandback uh, Foundation. I, I really don't think there's much involved in terms of installing the exhibition, you know, besides the, you know, the repair of the walls, which we have to deal all the time. And the way in which Sandback installs makes the sculpture look as if it's presented by magic, you know, because you only see these these lines of yarn held aloft and suspended in space as if they're levitating. But in fact, the the installation method is fairly simple, although secret. And and so I, I can't imagine that that would be detrimental to, you know, realizing this sooner. But who knows? It seems like an idea that institutions especially would embrace because every time somebody comes back, they get to not just see the piece differently, but just by the simple, very simple act of looking, understands the piece, understand the piece differently, which is kind of what institutions like to do and enable. Yeah, and perhaps this is just, you know, this is just the beginning of this work, you know, becoming a part of Sandback's exhibitions in the future. Because there's still a lot of um, that we will not discover, having realized a fraction of it. So finally, over the course of, of the show, we're going to check back in with you to hear about and to look at, via manpodcast.com, different permutations of the piece. So as we're taping this, you haven't installed the work yet. Do you think you have a good idea of how each of the 20 permutations you're going to install will look, or are you not... A are you kind of curious as to how it ends up playing out in physical and visual form? You know, I have I have superficially mapped out the first five that I'd like to see in space, but I'm leaving the remainder open because I do want to, you know, sort of discover um, the work myself and also listen to the visitors who come into space and be sort of responsive to that. I'm in this strange position as a, as a curator where I have not experienced the work that I'm about to show to the public. So it'll be a discovery process for the visitors as much as it will be for me. And I look forward to, you know, to seeing its effects and how it will unfold. And it's all the better at an institution that is free to visit because people can come back as much as they want and see the piece in as many 
different permutations as they want. That's the hope, and we have these new spaces that we're opening as a part of the exhibition at the Pulitzer. We've added 40% more gallery space to our building, and Sandek will be in one of those rooms. And sort of there's a, there's a hidden agenda there, too, uh, for installing this piece, which is I have a very... Uh, <laughs> I have an interest in understanding how that space behaves and just learning more about this new gallery. And I think, you know, the reinstallation and the installation of Sandbeck will certainly help me and my colleagues understand those new spaces better. Tamara Schenkenberg, thanks so much for talking with me, and I look forward to checking uh, in on the piece in a week or two. It was a pleasure. I look forward to talking to you again. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.